Having my medical background helped me to realize that medicine doesn't know it all. And there are limitations to what medicine can. And often people overestimate the possibilities of medicine. They think they can do everything. They can save every life. And they, they just know what to do in every situation. And in the hospital, I saw that it's not like this. Often they don't know what to do. Often they do things that uh, produce worse outcomes. And of course, they don't tell the patients, but I saw it with my eyes. And so I, I knew there are really limitations to medicine. And um, I have to choose wisely when I use medicine and when I don't. And especially in something like birth, which is a natural process and doesn't necessarily need medicine, it's wise to not intervene with all the methods that um, medicine comes up with. You're listening to The Untaming Podcast. Rewild the child. Here is your host, Emily Giles. Hi, I'm Emily and you're listening to The Untaming Podcast. Here we are on the new ice moon here in the Southern Hemisphere, which may sound quite uh, divergent to what you're experiencing up in the Northern Hemisphere. Meanwhile, down here, when this episode goes live, my kids and I will be celebrating Matariki with our homeschool group. Matariki is the Māori name for the Pleiades constellation. Our indigenous people marked the beginning of their new year in their lunar calendar when the Matariki cluster reappeared in the sky at this time of year. So we will be getting up very early and all meeting together on the beach while it's still dark to view the Matariki cluster, have a big bonfire and eat breakfast together. So I hope you enjoyed the last episode on neurogenesis with Brant Courtright. I think my biggest takeaway from reading his book and talking to him is the realisation that uh, forgetfulness and becoming senile are not just the standard typical factors of ageing that our culture tends to believe, but rather a sign that our brains are lacking the essential fats that they need to sustain their potential. So next week I am chatting with Nadine Artemis again. I believe she's the first guest I've had back for a third interview. You may remember the last times I spoke to her, we talked about how to be wise in the sun and dental health. This time we talk about some of the content in her book, Renegade Beauty. But for now, here is Sarah Schmid. Forty-year-old Sarah Schmidt graduated university with a license to practice medicine. Sarah and her family moved from their native Germany to Sweden for six and a half years before settling in northern Alsace in France. Since 2010, Sarah has been a full-time mother to nine children, ranging in ages from three and a half months to 15 years. Somehow, she also finds the time to make YouTube videos and write books. Sarah's first birth was at home with a midwife. The next eight children were all born at home without a midwife. In addition to free birth, some other parenting practices Sarah follows are co-sleeping, baby wearing, elimination communication, homeschooling, and eating a nutrient-dense diet following Western Price's principles. Last night, Sarah had eight hours of sleep, and for breakfast this morning, she had their usual soft-boiled eggs, with self-made yogurt with fruit, and the children also had some canned cod liver. Sarah, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you, Emily. So, Sarah, as I said in your introduction, your first birth was at home with a midwife. Can you tell us why you chose to free birth your next eight children? Um, For the first birth, I chose a home birth, a classical home birth with a midwife, and um, yeah, that was what my husband felt more comfortable with. And 
yeah, I thought, why why not having a midwife? Because it's my first baby and she will know what to do. And uh, she is experienced. She was an older lady. And yeah, she, she they, they, people recommended her to us. So, um, but the birth, yeah, the birth didn't go uh, right the way that I had dreamed it should go. And because my midwife was at another birth when my birth started and her colleague came and I didn't really get along with her. And I was like, um, somehow I wanted her to, to leave because yeah, she came, she came when we said nobody needs to come. And so when she was there, the contraction, it was like, it was not really serious at that time. So we were, we wanted her to go again. We gave her our number and, um, but then contractions picked up and she stayed and I was like, okay, I'll manage it through somehow. And, uh, that was not a good approach to birth, which I figured out later <laughs> or in the course. <laughs> of birth. Um, uh, so labor stalled for a few hours and contractions were really intense and painful. And the midwife, they, they thought, um, the midwife called an, yet another midwife because they thought birth would be imminent because I was already dilated nine, ten centimeters. But uh, after a few hours, they found out that um, the head had not, um, the head was not uh, in the right position for birth. So um, it was already the talk about going to the hospital for a C-section, and I was like. Oops, uh, that's what that's not what I intended. <laughs> mm. And obviously, the midwives didn't know how to solve the problem because somehow inside of me, I had given the birth over to to the midwives because I thought, here the experts are; they're gonna they're gonna do everything to have that I can have the baby <laughs> so, somehow. Mm. But when I when after these hours, uh, when I figured out that the midwives don't know what to do either, I was like, okay. I have to give birth birth to this baby or somebody else is going to cut it out of me. And that's not what I want. So I, I focused back on myself and what my body was telling me and on me instead of the midwives. And um, I moved the way that I felt my body was saying I should do. And yeah, in the end, the midwife that I had originally hired, originally hired, she also came and yeah, finally we had a baby. Wow. Yes. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> it was a hard birth. I thought now the experts are here and they're going to um, decision to do that. But it just happened because we are or, or any other medical person. Mm. And in this case, uh, it happened to be the midwives. Mm. Um, and that was the starting point to think about birth and how I re react to strange people in the room and uh, to think how I how do, how do I want to give birth and the next time I decided to do it just by myself because yeah I thought if I if I cut out everybody who comes with fear and everybody that I don't really like then my body can just do what it's supposed to do without disturbance mm. now Knowing that you're a licensed medical practitioner, a sentence you wrote in your book, Freebirth, that stood out to me was that your medical degree played only a small role in your decision to walk this path alone. What, yeah, what more do you have to share about that connection between your medical training and your choice to freebirth? Um, having the training... Uh didn't I, I don't I, I don't think it, it taught me a lot about birth because in the in 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 the in the medical training you don't learn much about birth just the way it's managed in the hospital and just really basic things so most of of what I know now about birth I I learned myself by researching and and um, reading stories and all of that after I uh, graduated or yeah not really after, but I, I graduated at that time shortly before my, my uh, first free birth, but I didn't learn these things in the medical books. So I had to, uh, to look for the information myself and knowing these things 
was it was not part of my medical training so to say so to say um but having my having medical background helped me to uh, to realize that medicine doesn't know it all and there are limitations to what medicine can and often people over overestimate the possibility mm. possibilities of medicine they think they can do everything. They can save every life, and they they just know what to do in every situation. And in the hospital, I saw that it's not like this. Often they don't they don't know what to do. Often they do things that uh, produce worse outcomes. And of course, they don't tell the patients. But I saw it with my eyes, and so I I knew there are really limitations to medicine and um, I have to choose wisely when I use medicine and when I don't. And especially in, in um, something like birth, which is a natural process and doesn't necessarily, necessarily need medicine. It's wise to not um, intervene with the, all the method methods that um, medicine comes up with. Yes. Yeah. I like that uh, insight. Um, so it was your book, Free Birth, that led me to contact you. It's really detailed and very matter-of-fact without being fear-mongering. I really like how you've broken it up into, you know, the introduction, nutrition, every aspect of pregnancy from common ailments to complications to understanding routine testing to self-directed pregnancy. And then great depth surrounding birth, the different stages, answering many commonly asked questions going into detail about various complications and what to do after birth you even have a section for fathers and somehow you managed to fit in several birth stories from free birthing mothers too i wondered if we could touch on just a few of these topics today possibly an important one to start with is nutrition we could spend the entire hour talking about nutrition and i have <laughs> I have already done a few episodes in the past related to this. So if you could just give us maybe like your key points that you'd like people to know about why and how nutrition is so critical for, for pregnancy. Yeah, health and and fertility, they are, they are one. They are so close related, you cannot separate them. Mm. And the better you take care of your health, the more easier and without complications your body will function and your body will function in regards of birth and pregnancy and it's just essential if you want to have an unmedicated and or a free birth and if you don't want to go to the doctor all the time then it's just essential that you are healthy because when you are not healthy then you will need the doctor and the doctors have their place so Better than running to the doctor all the time because you are not healthy is to be healthy and not needing the doctor at all. And it applies to pregnancy and also to birth and also to how you will feel after birth and how healthy the baby will be. So it's it's all related to how healthy your body is, how well these things will be working. Yes, very good. So a very routine aspect of pregnancy in the past I don't know maybe two generations has been ultrasound so can you just tell us why ultrasound was invented why I don't know <laughs> it came from the military originally but of course um, people wanted to monitor everything especially in the medical field and of course they wanted to monitor pregnancy more you cannot really see the baby from the outside so uh, it's uh, i think it was it's a, a big temptation to just look inside and see what's going on there <laughs> and how how safe are they then well there are several studies and it's not they the the recommendations they come to the researchers come to is that you should use it as little as possible and as much as needed which leaves quite much room for interpretation. But um, it, the researchers don't say it's just harmless and won't do anything. It's just they don't know much, but what they do know is that it can be harmful, especially when it's done a lot and if it's done early in pregnancy and if it's done with really much sound intensity, uh, especially when you do a 3D ultrasound. Mm -hmm. that's what we know 
And what about how accurate they are, like in terms of growth or anomalies? <laughs> yeah, yeah. People usually think, oh, when I get an ultrasound, I know everything, hundred percent. I know baby is healthy or not. Baby is this big, big like this, and so many centimeters, whatever. But it's it's not like this, and the errors are quite frequent. So mm. it's not. You you can you can measure you can measure four kilo kilograms in the ultrasound and the baby's only three point two or something like that. Mm. That's really common. So it's it's more like um like guessing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sometimes they they see they see a problem and in reality there is no problem or they don't see the problem and in reality there is a problem so you never have 100% and that was the reason why I decided against ultrasound from the second pregnancy on because in my first pregnancy they saw that the the what's these organs called where you may pee it's like the bladder the, the bladder no the kidneys the organ yes yeah the kidneys, the, the kidneys were enlarged hmm. with my first daughter when when they did ultrasound and it was like oh maybe it's trisomia twenty one or something like that and I was worried the whole pregnancy and in the end there was nothing there was yeah. just nothing to so that's why I decided if ultrasound can give me hundred percent I don't want to know anything because I don't want to live in fear because of ah maybe perhaps perhaps not. No, I want to know or I don't want to know, but I don't want anything in between. Yeah. Now, what about the use of Dopplers? Because now they're so readily available, parents can use them at home as often as they like. Yeah, it's also using the same technique. It's ultrasound. So you should know that if you use it. I mean, I do have a Doppler because it's easy to check in uh, if if you really need to or if you feel you need to. Hmm. But I use I used it just on occasion. So I, I never used it during my birth. I would use it if, if there's anything where I think, oh, I should check. I, I'm not sure. Mm. But these moments never happen. So I I, I I think I remember once in, in, in one pregnancy and twice in another pregnancy. So but I, I, I don't do it regularly just when I think, oh, the baby hasn't moved for hours now. And mm. uh, and I, I didn't I didn't get hold of a good uh, fetoscope. There are these these uh, ah yes fetoscopes, yeah. but I, I I I couldn't I couldn't get one. I don't know. It's hard to get. So that's why, if necessary, I I used the Doppler, but just for a short moment. And I think that's okay to to use it just like this. Yeah. Now, can you tell us what self-directed pregnancy looks like? Um, it means that you are the boss. <laughs> you decide what what is done and what's not done, and it can look very different depending on your on your situation and what you need or what you want. For me, it's I don't go to the doctor just in case there is something that I need to, to I need another opinion or a prescription or whatever. But this really re- rarely happens to me. So for me, a self-directed pregnancy is doing my own thing I do my own measurements because I like to do it you don't have to do anything you can just do what you feel safe with and what you want to do so that's what I really love about it that it's self-directed I I write my script and I do do the movie (laughs) (laughs) no so some of the ones that you suggested in your book I guess nutrition is one that you're if you're just taking care of that anyway that's not something that you regularly have to sit down and not like say belly mapping or fetal positioning or like taking blood pressure or anything like that yeah yeah Yeah. exactly and you also mentioned like resting positions resting positions like um like how you what movements you put your body in how you rest in terms of helping the baby into a good position yeah yeah especially when the baby is not in a good position so my babies have largely been in a good position, so I didn't do very much of it. I, I um, try to sit and walk and stand in a good position because that's important too, just uh, so that the baby can move in a good position. 
Mm. But when the baby is not in a good position, despite those efforts, then there are more more um, things you can do to help the baby in a better position. Yeah. Now, just thinking about what you were saying before about not having ultrasounds after your second preg. Well, yeah, after your first pregnancy. How do you know the location of the placenta? <laughs> I didn't always know it. Um, when the placenta is in front or somewhat in front, then you can feel it. But uh, most of the time, my placentas have been in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's always a little chance that the placenta is down low or in front of the cervix. But usually this comes with bleeding in the second and third um, um, trimester of pregnancy. So it's really rare that you don't see any spotting with a placenta previa. Mm. So that's why I didn't I didn't worry so much about the placenta because I didn't have any bleedings in pregnancy and yeah. Sorry, when did you say what which trimester would you usually notice the bleeding from the second and third. Ah, okay. So the Bleedings in the first trimester are quite common, but mm-hmm. bleedings in the second and third are most often uh, related to placenta, placental issues. Mm. That's good to know. Uh, now, as I said earlier, one of the sections in your book answers a lot of commonly asked questions. Do you mind if I ask you some of them? Always, of course. Yeah. Uh, not. <laughs> yeah. You, you don't, um, yeah, you don't have to answer them to the depth you did in the book, maybe just like a couple of sentences. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it will be more out of curiosity for the listeners. So, yeah, the first question, what if the mother is overdue? <laughs> um, so it's good to know that a normal pregnancy lasts uh, 40 weeks plus or minus two weeks, hmm. which uh, makes a normal pregnancy length from um, 38 to uh, 42 weeks. And most most births happen in this in this time frame. Mm-hmm. So it's quite uncommon actually to go beyond the 42 weeks, which would be uh, a little bit more out of normal. But in our days, uh, medicine decides what's normal or not. And if you are past the due date, then uh, I don't know why, but then uh, you get stressed. They they make you feel something is going to go wrong and you need to induce and, yeah, you can go along with it or not. And for me, it was easy to not go along with it because I don't, I don't go to the doctor anyway. So I could just be pregnant as long as I wanted. My last pregnancy lasted 42 weeks exactly. Wow. <laughs> and... Yeah, I did a lot of reading on it, and it's if you if you look at the facts, there is a slight elevated chance for the baby to die. But this chance is like a zero point two percent or something like that, hmm. which which is higher than in the, in at week forty. So the chances that the baby will be just born healthy is about ninety nine Four. Yeah, four percent. Even at forty weeks, you have a chance of a zero point four percent baby dying. So mm. there is always, there's never hundred percent safety for anything. Yeah. So something can always happen, but uh, it's rare that it happens. And I think every woman should be treated individually, and not everybody the same because if you have such a small chance of the baby dying then you should look especially at those women who are at risk that the baby dies and not everybody i mean i think it's stupid if if something happens to a small really small number of people to treat everybody the way that you should treat the few Mm. and uh, yeah i think i i don't i don't like this concept Yes. Because you have to, you have to induce like percent to save maybe one percent or less, and everything that comes with induction anyway is not beautiful. Hmm. Um, I'm just curious, what sort of range did you have? Because you said your last pregnancy was 42 weeks. How? What was the range you had in the lengths? 
Um, my shortest pregnancy was exactly 40 weeks and my longest was 42 weeks. Oh, and right. everything was everything was in between. So I, I never had a baby before my due date. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now what if the baby is big? Yeah, usually the size is not such an is- issue as long as the baby is in a good position. Mm-hmm. But uh, the big a big baby can be a problem, especially in first-time mothers, when the baby is not in a good position. Um, because it's harder for the baby to, to spin into a better position when mm. it's light and it fills the pelvis and there's not much place, uh, much space made by another baby before the first baby has to make the room for, for, for birth all, all by itself. And there's n- not another baby before that already made the room. So that's why it's more, more, um, narrow in there and when the baby is very large and is not in a good position then it's hard for the baby to turn in a better position otherwise they say that uh big babies are correlated to a shoulder dystopia shoulder dystopia which is maybe in the case in 50 percent of all shoulder dystopias which is not so much actually my my last baby was four kilo and she had a, a really mild shoulder they say i think they say sticky shoulder to this the shoulder took some more time to make its way hmm. yeah but you can you can just learn on if you're afraid you can learn on how to manage shoulder distorts just i don't know have hard time. i think it's dystocia Dystocia, yeah, right. In in German, we say dystopia. Dystopia, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Mm. But the size itself of the baby, yeah, it can be a problem in 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 case of position. But usually, I have heard of women who gave birth to five uh, kilogram babies, mm. just easily. So it doesn't it doesn't have has to mean anything. Yeah. Now, what if the waters break but contractions don't start immediately? Oh, it uh, it doesn't matter actually because <laughs> contractions usually start uh, soon after, and most babies are born within forty eight hours after um, the waters went. Mm-hmm. And if the what if if the waters break and the contractions don't start, it's um, it can happen when the baby is very much too early then i think it's better to go to the hospital and have have um medical attention because often this is connected to a bacterial infection but when it's a term baby and the and the water just goes and contractions will find will eventually pick up the body will will um will feel the change and will start birth but the body also makes new uh, water, so the baby's never on dry land. And if you drink enough, then the body has all the capacity to make enough water so that the baby is not dry and that bacteria cannot move up, but they are flushed out with mm. the water that are made all the time. Nice. And what if labor starts too soon? You mean if it's a uh, preterm um, yeah. labor? Or? Hmm. Yeah, it's best to to stop it if you can. <laughs> so there are different there are different um, causes for this. Um, most common is probably that uh, the bacteria in the vagina are not healthy, and that's how bad bacteria bacteria that don't belong there can move up and can cause inflammation, and this inflammation can make the birth start early. So if you check uh, your bacteria during during, during pregnancy um, and if you eat low, low sugar diet with, and eat lots of fermented foods or good bacteria, then your body should be able to make a good um, bacteria composition down in the vagina, vagina to prevent any bad bacteria to move up there. Mm-hmm. So, but this is a long-term, more a long-term project or something that if it ha- if it if it happens then it's too late so you have to prevent these things to happen earlier so check for your ph um level in the vagina is a good start 
to see if it's healthy down there or not. And what if contractions are painful but labor does not progress? Yeah, in, in this case, usually the baby is not in the best position. And mm. then I would start with spinning babies or something like this to, to position the baby better. And this is usually something that's not so hard. The poor thing is that in hospitals, they don't know about most of these exercise, exercises that are possible. Yeah. But um, the information is on the internet and you can do... Uh, much to help the baby in a better position and i have heard of many parents who uh, they did some of the spinning babies um exercises and the baby turned after hours and hours of no progress so in in many cases it it can solve the problem yeah and uh, yeah i'm glad you mentioned spinning babies uh, do you know of any other resources i interviewed gail tully a couple of years ago but i wondered if maybe there was a something in Germany or in France or that you know of? No, I I usually apply Gail Tully's um, work and exercises and I translated them for my German for my German mothers. Ah, cool. Nice. Yes, <laughs> spinning babies is very good. Now, um, what if there is a cord prolapse? This is very rare. It happens um, more common in preterm babies or in other cases where the the baby is not sealing the outlet. So if, if the baby is usually um, the baby is sitting in the pelvis and nothing can come between the pelvis and, and the cervix. But when the baby is high, then it can happen that the cord goes between baby and cervix. Mm. And this usually happens in preterm babies or when the baby is in a in a footling breech position for example then there can also there's also a gap between the baby and the pelvis hmm. and then um, a cord prolapse can happen it's so rare that i don't have a real life experience with it i just know theoretically what to do then you have to put up put the pelvis higher so that the cord comes out of the compression and then you I've, I've read of midwives that solved it somehow to get the cord out and the baby's still born normally but the usual uh, route is to go to the hospital and uh, have a c-section as fast as possible hmm. yeah that's but it's only theory for me because yeah I have never I've never encountered such a situation Yes, and like you said, it's very rare. I've also, yeah, one thing I heard of was, like, if your waters are still intact, it's, I mean, it's not going to happen then. So I know of people um, really with their diet, with their nutrition, making sure they uh, boost their vitamin C to help keep the amniotic sac intact for as long as possible. I mean, I don't know too much about the science behind that, but <laughs> that's just what I've heard. Yeah, I've heard I've heard the same, and uh, I think it it plays a role because there are some women who always have have the waters go before any contractions, and this would point me to not such a strong sac. Mm. Um, but usually this isn't this isn't a problem because the the baby when it's full term and the head is down in the pelvis, then there is no chance for the cord to come in between anyway. So, but it's better to have a a stable sac because if too much time goes between the water breaking and the birth, then infection is becoming more likely. And in the hospital, they stress you with antibiotics. So it's better to have a stable sick. Yeah. Okay, now what if there is a cervical lip? Yeah, there are two ways to handle it. One way is to put the pelvis up again and to take uh, pressure from the, the from the lip until it it shrinks down again mm -hmm. or um, that's what my midwife did with my first birth because I had one in my first birth. Uh, she would massage it away, which was quite painful, but it worked. Then the baby could be born. It usually happens when the baby is not in the best position with the head because mm -hmm. the head pushes open the cervix. And if the head doesn't push perfectly, then it can happen that there's um 
something of the cervix remaining and coming in between the head and the bony part of the pelvis. Mm. And then it swells. And when it swells, it gets really painful and can be in the way for the baby to move down further. Yeah, but it can also it can also be managed. But yeah, it takes some time if you use the method to put the pelvis up uh, in the air and wait for the lip to to the, the swelling to go away. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're doing a free birth, what if there is fetal distress, but as the mother or the parent, you don't notice? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> you, you never know 100%, of course, and mm. it's the same in the hospital, like at home. You There are some times that you don't notice or that everything is fine during birth, and then after birth, the baby comes out and is not breathing or something like that. That's really rare, but it happens, and you cannot always detect problems um, beforehand. So sometimes everything is just fine, no meconium, baby's heartbeat is there all the time, and then baby is out and not breathing. So this can happen, but it's really, really rare. But I think it's good to know some basic uh, CPR for babies to help you in this situation, and then you call the ambulance and they continue, hmm. and hopefully the babies has just a little starting problem. Yeah. And um, what if there is meconium? Um, meconium in on uh, just meconium doesn't necessarily need um, doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem. There can be a problem when there's meconium because the baby's stressed and then it poos because it's stressed. Meconium can happen more often in babies that are overdue because uh, then the baby had more time to collect all these things in in the gut that that come together in in the end of pregnancy it swallows uh the the water and with it all kinds of uh, skin peel and whatever is in is happening in the belly hmm. and and the green parts is uh, from from the the when the body's breaking down the blood the and then this makes up the, the meconium. And when when the baby is quite a long while in the belly, then there's quite a lot of meconium and it sometimes needs to poo before before it's out. And this can be quite normal and uh, it has not, it, ha- it often doesn't have any correl- correlation with um, complications. So I had meconium in two of my births and also in in the last birth where my baby was 42 born at 42 weeks Hmm. but there was no other problem with it yeah so if 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 there's a problem with the meconium then there should be anything else um pointing to a problem like the birth is going on and obstructed somehow and not progressing Mm -hmm. yeah yeah now, I was going to ask what if the shoulders get stuck, but we kind of already covered that with if the baby is big, unless there was something else that you wanted to add there. Yeah, usually you can solve um, the shoulder problem by just changing position. Mm. That's what I did, and usually this helps. And if it doesn't help, then uh, it's good to have somebody else who can hook hook the shoulder, yeah. put in a finger, and, and help the baby uh, spin around. Yeah. And what if the cord is around the neck? Uh, usually it doesn't matter. Hmm. I think one third of all babies, they have the cord around the neck once, twice, or more often. So usually it's not a problem. It's not um, it's not connected to a higher incidence of complications. But in some cases, it can um, point to that the baby was not really well um nourished in the body because the when the court the, the the blood flow in the court is not very good during du- during pregnancy and also during birth then it can be that the baby is not um nourished perfectly and this can sometimes lead to problems yeah but usually it doesn't mm-hmm. um what if the baby doesn't breathe um usually babies will start breathing Sometimes babies don't breathe in the first minute of life. This is considered um, 
normal, but mm. they should start. They should start after a minute. They should start breathing, and usually they do. When they don't, then you have a problem. It's a rare problem. I think it's less than 1% or something like that, that uh, you really need to do full CPR on a baby. But then it's good to have these skills in, in case this happens. Mm. Yeah, it, it's rare, but it happens. Yeah. What, what, sort of, um, yeah. what sort of things would you do? If, I, I don't know if that situation's ever happened to you. Yeah, it happened to me just a few days ago. <laughs> but it's good to know what to do to keep the the clock, um, to check the clock so that you know how much time passes. Mm-hmm. And uh, to so so that after the first minute, when after the first minute, um, the baby's not starting to breathe, that you start stimulating the baby, you start to to rub it and to to do everything to to get it going. Mm-hmm. And when this doesn't work, then you um usually so in my case the baby uh did did breathe at birth but then it just a few it just did a few breaths and then it's it would stop breathing and usually they continue and they pink up and everything is fine but in this mm. case it just did the opposite so then you start um giving the baby oxy oxy or you you do a cpr um Unfortunately, I didn't have a back and mask, so I did mouth uh, to mouth nose breathing, mm-hmm. and I would do chest compressions. And at the same time, immediate, immediately when you see there's a problem, call the ambulance because they have much better equip, equipment and education on this. And then you do the CPR and the um, respiration. How do you say that when you breathe? When you breathe for somebody. Oh, um, um, yeah, I'm not sure. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You do that until the ambulance arrives and then they will take over. Yeah. So, sorry, just think about this one that you had a couple of days ago. Did you, was this a birth that you attended? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the baby is fine now? It seems so. So they did the cooling therapy on it for three days and now it's, um, it's breathing on its own again. So they took out all the ventilation stuff and the baby is breathing on its own now. So I hope everything will be fine. Yeah. Oh, good. Uh, now, what if the placenta takes a long time to come out? Um, as long as you don't bleed, it's not uh, a real problem. You mm. should get it out at some point, of course. <laughs> but as long as the mother's not bleeding, like, uh, yeah, we have a problem here, then... Uh, yeah, you just can work on it to get it out. When the birth is quite some time ago, then it can be harder because the cervix starts closing again. And then it can be helpful to push really hard and also pull on, on the cord. But uh, I advise my mothers to do it themselves because then you feel if it's feeling if it's if it's right what you're doing. So I I, I would not want anybody else to pull on, on my cord. But usually the, the, the placenta is detached uh, quite quickly after birth, like five mm. minutes or so. Most placentas are detached after five minutes. So it's usually that the placenta is detached but still hanging above the cervix, which has already closed a bit again. So you need some, some force and effort to get it through the, the narrow part. Yes. And I want to add here because I have... Yeah, I have two children. I free birthed them both as well. But my first one, his placenta came out after two and a half hours and it was only when I went to the toilet. So I felt like that relaxing because I felt it Uh detach right after birth, but then it didn't come out until I actually yeah relaxed enough for it to come out. And then with my second one, I did go to the toilet. I went about three times trying to get it out. It took five hours in the end. And I think it was because she kept crying and I could hear her crying in the distance and I think I wasn't relaxed enough and it wasn't until she actually fell asleep and then I went to the toilet and then it came out and I was like, ah, I think I just was in a state of slightly tenseness that (laughs) prevented it. Yeah, definitely. It's in Mm. place of all. I've experienced the same. So it's, it's usually, it's not, it's not a difficult thing to get it out. You just need quite some relaxation and focusation and, and, it will be out. Yeah. And okay, now what if the baby inhales some amniotic fluid? Now I wonder if this is similar to the um 
what you experienced the other day? Mm, um, luckily, I didn't experience that because no. in my case, there was no sign for any detress, distress. There was no meconium, nothing. Mm. Um, meconium uh, aspiration is a rare thing. It's really rare. It's when the baby is stressed so much in, in, the, in the belly that it starts uh, breathing before being out. And mm. when it's stressed, it can, it can happen that it also poos earlier so it can happen that it breathes in mm. the poo and this is a bad thing it usually needs it needs treatment in the hospital because the lung will inflame get inflamed from the poo and yeah it's not a not not, not a funny thing no yeah okay now what if um what if the mother hemorrhages after the birth yeah there are different things you can do Mm. usually it's good to just keep a relaxed uh, situation because the hormones usually can take care of everything also um, to get the uterus to shrink and to stop the bleeding so these hormones are essential if you want everything to go just smooth and but if you start stress or yeah like a situation like having to uh, um do CPR on the baby is usually a situation where it can happen that the mother starts bleeding. And I'm lucky it didn't happen in my case for the few few days ago. But this is a situation where it happens more often that the mother starts bleeding because the hormones are um, not flowing as they should, but stress is coming in. Mm. Um, there are different herbs you can use. There is uh, the medication you can use. Uh, depends on what you can get hold of and what you believe in i never had problems with bleeding in my in all my births even if they were twins or baby number nine usually they say yeah the more babies you get the more chances you have uh, for bleeding or twins or even higher chances for bleeding i never experienced this in my birth yeah so i was not overly afraid of this either Mm. But yeah, you can put something cool on the belly to help them the uterus to sh to to shrink. There there are different things you can do. Yeah, and I'm thinking of like prevention. I remember hearing that once again it's nutrition with um, regards to your iron intake, and I think That's it's it. possibly your sodium and fluid intake to help. So even if you do hemorrhage, your body can handle it because you're yeah. well nourished enough. Yeah, yeah, a well-nourished mother will not not so easily uh, start bleeding. This is also observation from poor countries that connects bleeding with uh, poor nutrition intake and um, poverty. Mm. So if you're well-nourished, it's quite unlikely to happen. It can happen when the birth is when the birth has been really long, when when the, the uterus is tired, so to speak. But um, yeah, you, I think you can you can cut down the the chances for hemorrhage just by being healthy and well um, nourished. Hmm. Now I'm curious if you have experienced any of these. You know, some of them are serious complications. Some of them are perceived complications, but aren't really in your own births. Mm, yeah, the only thing I can think of might be the the sticky shoulder that I had hmm. but it was not I, it was solved easily so I don't know if I should <laughs> label it complication yeah but the rest of your births were all straightforward yeah yeah Two times I had uh, the water breaking first and then labor starting but yeah everything just went the way it should yeah and so now your seventh and eighth children were twins. How, how did you know you were having twins? <laughs> um, my belly was bigger than normal. <laughs> and after, I, I think, 25 weeks or so, I, I palpated two hard balls mm -hmm. <laughs> beside each other. And this kept me thinking. And, um, and I was, I, I, I thought, what else should it be when it's not twins? So I was quite sure there were twins in there and we went, I, I had an ultrasound to have it confirmed mm -hmm. at that point. Yeah. And can, do you mind sharing the, that birth story with us? 
yeah. It was just, it was a nice birth. So it was not as painful as a singleton. I think because the heads were smaller. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. It was really, really nice and pleasant birth. It was not too fast and not long either. My births usually aren't, aren't long. Yeah, but it was in the evening and we set up everything and my husband put the kids to bed. The smaller kids, the bigger ones, they stayed awake and they 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 came by and checked every every now and then and how how uh, far the birth was was already and i think our second daughter she was there when her little sister was born yeah and it just went straight forward one after the other 9 minutes apart mm-hmm. both were head down nice. yeah it was just a normal birth only two <laughs> yeah I'm just thinking of what you said before about um, none of your births have been particularly long. What sort of, do you have like an average length or a range of length of your births? Yeah, I I usually count the the hours from the moment that the contractions really get intense and so like not this, all this before, is it, is it birth? Is it not birth? Mm starting for two hours and then disappearing again but for me birth starts when contractions are like okay now boom yeah. boom <laughs> boom that's now okay then then I take it serious and I know okay birth is starting so and this takes for me maybe three hours two or three hours or four hours yeah nice yeah and with what you said about uh, your twins not being quite so difficult as the others since their heads were possibly smaller. So the twin birth was not your most difficult birth? No. No, it was my easiest birth. I would do wow. the twin birth again. It was really... <laughs> it was not painful. I, I, I don't remember it as painful. And also mm-hmm. I didn't... I can't remember any transition stage. It oh. just went from uh, opening stage to... Oh, usually I do the... I do the the pushing in this position. Oh, mm. I think I need to push. Okay, I push. <laughs> so it was this easy. Wow. And so then which which birth would you describe as your most difficult? Was it the first one? Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for sharing this all with us. I'll be putting links in the show notes to your book, your website, your Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube pages. Is there anywhere else I can send people who would like to learn more about what we've talked about today? Oh, I think this is everything. (laughs) Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, I hope the listeners have been as fascinated as I have been with everything you've had to share. Yeah, thank you for having me. So my final question for you to end on is if the entire world's knowledge was lost and you could only leave one sentence for future generations, what would it be? It would be, birth is a natural process. If you enjoyed this episode, you can join the discussions on our Facebook and Instagram pages. To hear more, subscribe for free on the podcast app on your smartphone. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. If you would like to offer feedback or suggest a guest, email us at untaming.podcast at gmail.com.